Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Department of Danger by Jack Lancer, Volume 5, Chapter 13, Red-Headed Surprise. The girl's threat caught Chris by surprise. He stiffened for an instant, but quickly picked up the beat of the dancing again. Sorry, you'll have to aim a little higher, he murmured. I'm wearing bulletproof underwear sort of nylon and steel mesh body stocking. The blonde stared at Chris, evidently not sure whether he meant the remark to be taken seriously. Finally, she relaxed with a giggle. You know, I like you, she confided. I think Nikos has very good taste in picking couriers. Couples all around them were dancing in a sort of stupefied ecstasy as the din of the music beat against their ears. Oh, then you know all about Nikos, do you? Chris inquired. Of course. He's top man in Yank Toad. I'm Toad, Dolly, 324, in British wing, by the way. Name? Pamela. Very nice. Always did like that name. Pamela dimpled. Thanks. Chris isn't bad either. By the way, who's that with you? Jerry? He's an American college boy I ran into in the Chelsea pub. He's an Indian. A red Indian, that is. Does he know the couples are after you? Uh-huh. He's letting me hide out in his room till the heat's off. He seems to be doing all right. Chris looked around to see Geronimo dancing with a redhead who was also wearing harlequin insect glasses. Chris did a double-take as the redhead's face came into better view. No, it couldn't be. But it was. It was Spice Carter co-ed CIA teen agent from Vassar. The music stopped and Chris started back to his table with Pamela. Geronimo and Spice joined them. Spice had helped the Kingston duo on two previous cases. Nice going, Jerry, Chris said. Shall we do the honors? The redhead extended her hand casually across the table without waiting for Geronimo to introduce her. Hi, I'm Spice Carter. Mainline Deb from dear old Philly and all that jazz, getting my final polish in Europe. Chris beamed back as he squeezed her fingers. All you need is one of those long anti-maim cigarette holders, honey, and you're ready for the big time. My name is Charles Cass, and this is Pamela. Spice tilted an eyebrow and looked the English girl over as if she were a lab specimen on a glass slide. Pamela what? Just Pamela, dear. How very quaint. And that pin you're wearing, where did you pick that up? Portobello Road? A gift from the Queen, darling. Chris cleared his throat. And her boyfriend, Pamela, is Geronimo Johnson. The British girl beamed. Both from the same reservation, I presume. She turned to Spice again. This filly you speak of is somewhere in the Great West, is it? West of the Hudson, quite right. Your expertise in geography fully matches your stunning appearance. 
Music exploded again from the stereo speakers. Spice gave Chris a dazzling smile. You're cute, Charles. Shall we dance? Pamela shot her a look of daggers while Chris deflected with a faintly apologetic shrug before accompanying Spice out on the dance floor. Face to face now, the two agents began swinging to the wild beat. Chris grinned. To coin a phrase, what's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this? Ask you. He shipped me off to London this morning on about two hours' notice, and your friend Folian informed me I might find you two here at Queenie's. Chris briefed Spice hastily, but stopped short as he saw Pamela approaching them. May I cut in, darling? She asked Spice. He's a poor thing, but he is mine. Do, please. Spice stifled a yawn with her fingertips and left the dance floor. Such picturesque friends you have, said Pamela. Are all American birds like her? Not at all. Just the mainline Debs. Pamela's face went coldly serious. Let's drop the gay chit-chat, shall we? You realize that British Toad has you marked for the kill. Chris did a comical shoulder shrug. It's no joke, laddie boy. American Toad alerted our London HQ that you were intercepted at Kennedy before takeoff. The CIA might have persuaded you to work for them, and we prefer to take no chances. I rather assumed as much, Chris replied, since you've already tried to do me in twice. But he was relieved. At least Toad didn't seem to take him for the real Chris Cool. Q's scheme seemed to have worked. He looked at Pamela. Just for the record, the CIA never even tried to work on me. If you say so, but I wouldn't bank too much on your chances of convincing London HQ. But I've already arranged a contact over the phone. Chris said. For tomorrow. They're probably setting you up, Pamela retorted. Aren't you taking a bit of a risk in telling me all this? Putting my neck on the chopping block? Yes, but I'd like to see you live. Then what do you advise? Pamela danced for a while without replying. Do you know Madame McCobb's Wax Museum? Be there tomorrow around five o'clock. I'll be there. The music stopped and they returned to the table. Spice and Geronimo were gone. Chris's eyes roamed keenly around the dimly lit room, but he could see no sign of either of them. Seems we've been abandoned to our fate, he remarked. I expect I can bear up, said Pamela. One final word of advice. You're a hot item. Toad has an underworld dragnet out for you all over London, and this disco happens to be a favorite toad haunt as you no doubt heard. I shouldn't hang around too long if I were you. And lie low when you leave here. Understood. The music resumed. Must go now. Cheerly bye. Pamela moved away in the swirl of dancers and disappeared through a door at the back of the room. Chris felt uneasy. What had happened to Spice and Jerry? Had some toad agent quietly gotten the drop on them? Not likely, or else why would Chris himself have been left undisturbed? Or had the toad agent assumed Pamela was taking care of him? Ten minutes ticked by slowly. Wherever Geronimo and Spice had gone, it seemed they were not coming back. Chris rose abruptly and strode up the staircase, past the cloakroom and the desk where he'd registered. 
Good night, sir. Hope you've enjoyed yourself. Fun galore, Chris said. By the way, that fellow I came with, the one with the long, dark locks, did he leave here with a red-haired girl? Oh, yes, I believe they did, the host said vaguely. To tell the truth, though, I can't say I noticed them in particular. Other guests coming in and registering, you know, keeps one busy. Yes, I'm sure. Well, good night. Chris unlatched the wooden door that looked as if it had survived from the days of the first Queen Elizabeth and walked out. The cafe was only a few blocks away. As Chris opened the door, something hard pressed against his side. No fast moves, please, said the voice on his left. I tend to be frightfully nervous on the trick-off. Chris glanced out of the corner of his eye and saw a tall, black-haired man with a bushy, up-twirled mustache. A memory clicked. I do declare. The RAF officer at the British Museum. Bang on, the man confirmed. His mustache lifted in a toothy, sinister chuckle. Well, old fruit, you want it to be Drakoff? That's exactly where we're going. Chapter 14 Bombs Away The man's right hand was out of sight in his coat pocket, clutching the weapon he'd used to prod Chris. Delighted you showed up, the agent said coolly. I'm eager to meet Mr. Drakoff. Splendid. I can see we'll get on like a house of fire. The man with the mustache chuckled again. Ringe is my name, by the way. Wing Commander Ringe. Now then, if you'll kindly start walking ahead of me. He broke off as a taxi rumbled into the crowded passageway and blocked their route. The taxi disgorged two couples. As one of the men paid the driver, the first girl who got out looked around and said in an unmistakably American voice, And where are we going now? Right this way, please, Chris spoke up brightly. He whirled around, stepping from Ringe, and gestured toward the door. Grinning, the four people passed single file between Chris and his captor. As the couples disappeared inside, Chris stood with his left hand jammed into his blazer pocket. Something was poking out against the cloth. It was aimed straight at Ringe. Sort of a double checkmate, huh? Chris smiled back at the Drakoff man's baffled scowl. None of your silly tricks, cool. I know that's only a finger in your pocket. Really? Chris stepped closer until they were face to face. For a moment, Ringay hesitated, then reached out his left hand to feel the American youth's pocket. In that instant, Chris belted him in the short ribs. The blow spun Ringay around and sent him tottering backwards. Chris fouled with an upward kick that hooked his foe's legs and dumped him onto the pavement. Ringay's hand had jerked out of his pocket to break his fall. Chris trod on his wrist and pulled a small automatic from his paralyzed grasp. Okay, on your feet, chum. Fuming with helpless rage, Ringay got up. Chris, meanwhile, ejected the clip of shells from the magazine and tossed the gun away. No need for ordinance on a friendly little social call. Shall we proceed? Ringay brushed himself off and chafed his hurt wrist. Bad enough, these monkey tricks, he said reproachfully. Did you have to step down quite so hard? Only way, I'm afraid, when somebody's toying with dangerous firearms. Side by side, they sauntered down the alley. That uniform you were wearing at the museum, Chris remarked. And the wing commander, Jazz? 
Are you really in the RAF? Was once. Just a supply officer, actually. Bringay confided. Got cashiered for embezzling mess funds. But the uniform does look dashing, doesn't it? And the moustache. He gave a fond twirl and chuckled. Tell the truth, I never did like planes. I can hardly tell the tale of a spitfire from the nose. His car, a Vauxhall, was parked near the end of the passage. Chris got into the front seat and Ringay slid behind the wheel. The Drakoff man keyed the ignition and swung the car around in reverse and then started forward. As they came out of Shepherd Market into Curzon Street, Chris heard him gasp. Ringay gunned the engine and the Vauxhall shot left. At the same instant, a big black Bentley zoomed out from the curb on their right and rammed them amidships. With a crash of crumpling metal, the Vauxhall heeled over slightly, then jolted back on four wheels again, but his engine was stalled. The impact had knocked Ringay forward, banging his head against the windshield. His forehead was dripping blood, and his right shoulder seemed to be pinned between the caved-in door panel and the steering column. They've pranked us, old boy, he gasped. It's the third bunch. You'd better clear out. Chris, unhurt except for a small bump on the temple, saw a sinister-looking goon climbing out of the Bentley. Another sat poised, watchfully behind the wheel. Two other cars had braked to a halt on the street. People were streaming toward them. Somewhere in the background, a police whistle shrilled. Chris made a lightning choice. Bursting out, he yelled, Quick, get an ambulance, somebody! And he took off at a run with the sinister-looking man after him. He dashed down Curzon Street among the startled onlookers and then snaked off on a zigzagging course through the adjoining side streets. By then, he had lost his pursuer. Several blocks away, he finally slowed down. Oh, brother, now what? Chris paused in a darkened doorway twirled the stem of his wristwatch to transmit and gave it a tug. This would produce a sharp, buzzing signal on Geronimo or Spice's watch if either of them were within radio range. No response. Chris signaled again. Kingston 1, calling Redskin and Redhead. Come in, please. Still no answer. Their silence was even more alarming than their disappearance. Should he go back to the rooming house? Chris decided to play the situation by ear. I'll go back at least long enough to get my suitcase and find out if I've had any more phone messages, he decided. Then maybe I'll head for Jerry's hotel and wait around there. I can always stash the bag at a railway station. Chris took the underground to Sloan Square and walked the rest of the way. As he approached Mrs. Snyth's rooming house, he slowed down cautiously. The street appeared empty. Chris circled the whole block, but saw no sign of a stakeout. The windows of the gray Victorian tenement house were dark. Chris let himself in through the front door. The dimly lit hall was wrapped in silence. He climbed two steep flights of stairs. On the third floor, he walked softly to his room. Chris was about to insert his key in the lock when he froze suddenly. A ticking noise was coming from inside the room. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Beads of perspiration stood out on Chris's forehead. It couldn't be an alarm clock. He didn't have one. 
Somebody must have slipped in and planted a bomb while he was out. Now the question is, how do I get inside and disarm it? Chris wondered. Opening the door might trigger it. On the other hand, the ticking seemed to indicate an ordinary time bomb rather than a booby trap arrangement. Not that that's any better, Chris realized. If that thing goes off, it could kill everyone in the house. What time would the detonating device have been set for? Midnight? He'd have to do something, and fast. But what? Should he risk a booby trap and open the door? His hand, holding the key, moved toward the lock and then withdrew gingerly again. There's more than my own life at stake here. I'll have to rouse everybody and get them out of the house. What a mess. But there wasn't any other way out. Well, no safe way out, at least. Better wake the landlady first, Chris decided, and have her call the police. He turned and dashed back downstairs to Mrs. Snyde's apartment. Sounds of nasal snoring came from within. He rapped several more times. At last, the door opened. Young Bert Snyde peered out. Yeah? What you want? Wake up your mother, please. I must speak with her at once. Mum's asleep. Well, wake her up, Chris exclaimed, his voice cracking. Come on, come on, look alive, kid. Bert stared at him, then finally withdrew into the apartment. The snoring sneezed with an explosive gasp. Presently, Mrs. Snyde appeared in a bathrobe and hair curlers. Walt! She frowned suspiciously. Chris explained in a frantic haste. I think there might be a bomb in my room, and it may go off at any time. You'll have to get everyone out of the house and call the police. A bomb? Yes, I can hear ticking. Mrs. Snyde gave him a withering look. That ain't no bomb, boy. It's an alarm clock. I've seen you have none, and we had extra, so I put it in your room. Chris slowly deflated, like a punctured balloon. Oh, an alarm clock, huh? Mrs. Snyde nodded. Lips pursed severely. Chris could see Burke grinning behind her. The agent apologized, red-faced and sheepish, and went back up to the third floor. It was one of his life's darkest moments. Chris stopped at the end of the hall and inserted the key in the lock. He put his hand to the knob and opened the door, and a deafening explosion shattered the night's stillness. Chapter 15 a Suspicious Character Chris stood stock still, waiting for his pulse to calm. His heart was thudding like a trip hammer, and his legs felt rubbery. But he was still in one piece. An acrid smell of gunpowder wafted from his room. Doors were opening down the hall. Lights were flashing on. Footsteps were pounding up the stairs. What's all this, then? A bomb? What's going on up here? Was anyone killed? Voices clamored frantically at Chris. He collected his wits and turned to cope with the pajama night-robed rumors. Apparently, the whole household had been roused. I'm afraid I don't know what happened yet. I just opened my door and boom. Chris's brain was clicking at top speed now. Had the bomb been a dud? You better stay back till I see what's what. He cautioned the people clustering around him. They fell back gingerly, and Chris went into his room and pressed the light switch. Then he looked on the other side of the door. 
and the answer became clear. Two wires led to a pair of small copper strips taped at the door crack. When the door was open, the strips had brushed together and closed a circuit. At the other end, the wires had been connected to a dry cell battery, one of them by a loop of fine wire, which no doubt had been threaded through a king-sized firecracker. The fine wire now charred and parted, had glowed red-hot from the current, and sparked the explosion. Shreds of the firecracker littered the floor. Just a practical joke, I guess, Chris announced. Mrs. Snyte appeared through the crowd. Her sparrow-like face was white with outrage. Queer on a joke, I'd call it, she said sharply. Chris shrugged as he saw Bert sniggering behind her. Depends on your sense of humor. Now I wonder who'd have firecrackers around here. Firecrackers? Mrs. Snyth's beady eyes suddenly blazed with suspicion. That's right. Somebody rigged one to explode from an electric spark as I opened up. He pointed behind the door. Mrs. Snyth rounded wrathfully on her son. But Snyth, you sneaky, ungrateful little wretch! The wretch quailed under her tongue lashing. His sly snigger changed to a shrill whine. It was only a joke, Mum. Joke, is it? I'll give you something to joke about. Chris said hastily. I'm sure he didn't mean any harm, Mrs. Snyth. Quite clever, really, being able to rig a circuit like that. You heard the jet, Mum. I didn't mean no harm. Well, I do, Mrs. Smythe said as she cuffed him on the ear. Bert fled down the hall, pursued by his mother. Chris cleared his throat uncomfortably, and as the onlookers dispersed, he closed the door. Chris realized he was drenched in cold sweat. Switching off the light, he flopped wearily onto the bed. I'll wait till the house is quiet again, he decided, then freshen up with a shower and clear out of here. Gradually, silence settled over the household. Chris stripped to his shorts and put on a bathrobe. With a towel tucked under his arm, he went to the bathroom down the hall. Ten minutes later, he was toweling himself off briskly and feeling more cheerful. In shorts and robe again, he switched off the light and went over to raise the window blind so the steamy atmosphere might clear a bit faster. Suddenly, Chris stiffened in alertness. Looking over the roof to the house next door, he could see a tall figure walking slowly along the street. Chris drew back out of sight behind the window curtain to watch. The man stopped near a parked car, pulled something from his pocket, apparently a notebook, and began writing. He paused and glanced up at the lodging house. The man was not close enough to his street lamp to be clearly visible, but he was mustached and had a band-aid over his forehead. Renge. It has to be him, Chris thought. Maybe it's still not too late to meet Drakoff tonight. But the man was now climbing into his car. Was there time to stop him? Chris dashed out of the bathroom and down the two flights of stairs. Even if he was wrong and it wasn't Ringe, it would do no harm to have his license number traced. As Chris burst out of the house, the car was just starting up. It zoomed off before he was halfway to the curb. Darn it! The exclamation was barely off Chris's lips when he heard the front door swing shut and the latch click. Oh no! No! My key's in the room! Another fine mess. Now what was he going to do? Chris cringed at the prospect of rousing Mrs. Snyde again after the bomb scare. 
Maybe I could pick the lock, he thought. Then he asked himself wryly, Yeah, right, with what? Chris groped in the pockets of his bathrobe. Empty. In desperation, he began scanning the pavement and the tiny flowerbed patch around Mrs. Snipes' front steps. Ah, there we go, a bent nail. Chris saw it glint in the glow of the light from the nearest street lamp. As he picked it up, he heard a faint roll of thunder. The sky was overcast and starless. Chris went up to the front door and was about to insert the nail when he saw a figure coming along the street. It was a helmeted bobby twirling his truncheon. As the officer approached, Chris turned away from the door again. Evening, Constable. Not much breeze stirring tonight, huh? The policeman remarked. Huh. Looking at Chris's bare shanks and sandaled feet beneath the skimpy bathrobe, Chris smiled back foolishly. I couldn't sleep. I had to come out for a breath of air, sir. Constable nodded. Wouldn't stay out too long if I were you, sir. May come to rain soon, I shouldn't wonder. He touched his stick to his helmet and passed on. Well, at least the close was clear now. Chris turned back to the front door and hastily went to work on the lock again. No luck. Suddenly there was a blinding flash of lightning, followed by a cannonade of thunder. And the next moment the rain came down in gusty sheets. Chris gave up in despair and rang the doorbell. I might as well just get it over with, he thought grimly. Several minutes and three rings later a light went on. The landlady peered out at him from the window. By this time, Chris was drenched. Mrs. Snyde opened the door and looked him up and down. Well, she sniffed, ask what you're doing out here at this hour of the night, in a rainstorm in that condition, Mr. Cass. Chris maneuvered himself inside and floundered out a feeble explanation as the landlady's eyes regarded him coldly. That's as may be, young man, she said when he had finished. I asked if you were an artist when you came in and you said no. Now then, operate a respectable lodging house and I've seen quite enough. First a ticking bomb in your room and now this. I shall expect you to leave first thing in the morning. Your rent will be returned with one night's lodging deducted. Clutching her sleazy pink robe about her, Mrs. Snite stalked back to her room and slammed the door. There hardly seemed much point in going out to roam the streets in stormy weather. Chris napped until daybreak. Then he dressed, packed his suitcase, and crept out of the house. The rain was over. From Sloan Square, he went by underground to Victoria Station, where he retired to a lonely corner bench in the waiting room. Masking himself behind an open newspaper, he tried buzzing Geronimo on his wristwatch communicator. The Apache answered, and a moment later, Spice's voice chimed in from her own hotel. Where'd you two disappear to last night? Chris asked tartly. Spice thought she spotted a suspicious character, Geronimo replied. Some fellow who'd been on the same flight with her coming over. Well, you have to admit, it did seem a bit too much of a coincidence. Anyway, we followed him from Queenie's and then trailed him on the underground all the way out to the London boondocks. False alarm, I'm afraid, Chunde. The underground. So that's why his radio call had gotten no response, Chris realized. What about you, K-1? Spice inquired. Long story. 
Let's have breakfast, and I'll fill you in on the sad tale. An hour later, all three were tucking away bacon and eggs at a restaurant, while Chris related his night's adventures. So what's our next move, fearless leader? Try making contact with Toad at the changing of the guard, Chris said thoughtfully. If it doesn't pan out, there's always the dear old Duchess of Soho in Hyde Park, and then Pamela at the Wax Museum at five. Spice giggled maliciously. Chamber of Horrors, I presume? Chris shrugged. I thought she was rather cute myself. Geronimo grunted and put down his coffee. Excuse me for interrupting, kiddies, but you think this changing of the guard thing is safe. If what that Pamela squat told you is on the level, Toad may be setting you up for a poison dart or something. As dear old Foliot would say, that's a risk I'll have to take, Chris said dryly. But let's see if we can't figure out some way to reduce the hazards. The three discussed it for a while, then Chris telephoned the Department of Danger and filled Foley out in on their plans for the day. At 11.20, Chris descended from a taxi near Buckingham Palace. Tourists and other spectators were already collecting in front of the iron fence around the palace courtyard. Chris mingled with the sightseers. Inside, a pair of red-coated guards were pacing back and forth in front of sentry boxes stamping their boots smartly at each about face. Chris glanced about casually. A number of sightseers were clustered around the steps of the Victoria Memorial across the street, and among them his keen eyes picked out Spice. Geronimo was nowhere to be seen, but he was lurking around here somewhere, Chris knew, and so were a sprinkling of foliot security guards, not to mention the usual bobbies and policewomen. Presently, amid a great bawling of orders by Sergeant's Major, the old guard began forming up inside the courtyard. Meanwhile, where was Toad? Somewhere in the crowd at that very moment, an agent might be. From a distance came a thump of drums and the scream of bagpipes. Down the mall and past the memorial came the Scots guards, kilted pipers in the lead, skirling out the road to the aisles. Chris's eyes strayed momentarily from the blaze of color. It was then that he spotted the Toad Executioner.